Welcome to the Journey Through Life podcast. I'm Justin Barton and the host of this show, and I'm very grateful to have you as a listener today. As you listen to any of our other episodes, past, present, or future, and you have the name or image of a friend or family member pop into your mind, please share that episode with them. Acting on that thought can and will bring great blessings and joy to you and that person that comes to mind. Now, I'm very excited to continue this very special 12-week series of the Journey Through Life podcast. This series is called Journey in Recovery. Now, I've interviewed many different people from lots of different places and backgrounds on one of each of the 12 steps of recovery as laid out originally in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, before you shut this off and say, this doesn't apply to me, I'm asking you to please give it a shot for the next several weeks. Whether you or I are an actual addict or not, I know that we all have weaknesses in our lives. Some of those may be something that no one knows about but ourselves, but we really wish we could move past them. But try as we will, we have not been able to leave them behind. I've experienced that learning of and applying the 12 steps of recovery can be beneficial to any human being who goes through it with real intent and applies the principles of these steps into their lives. I know that they will be able to move through any addiction, any habit, any self-destructive or unwanted behavior. And this can include full-blown drug and alcohol addiction, including prescription medications. It could include something as seemingly dire as cutting or eating disorders, or something as insignificant comparatively, maybe, but just as gripping as smartphones, video games, social media. Now today we'll be hearing the experience, strength, and hope of Father Bill W., who is celebrating his 47th anniversary of sobriety, being a guest on this show, and I'm super grateful that he took time out for that on such a big day in his life. In this episode, he shares his own experience, strength, and hope, and focusing mostly on step six of the steps of recovery. If this is your first episode of this series, or of this podcast as a whole, I highly recommend that you go back and listen to all seven of the previous episodes of this Journey in Recovery series that started the first Monday in, of, in January of 2020. In recovery, there are 12 steps, and they are in a prescribed order for a reason. So, whether you do that now, or after you listen to this episode, you need to listen to the others of them, continuing with steps 7 through 12 over the next several weeks. Step 6 reads, We're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. In this conversation, Bill W. introduces me to a few new concepts and ideas that have made a massive impression on me in my own daily living. The biggest thing is this concept of two-way prayer that he brings up. Man, what a potential game-changer. Please listen and learn. In this and other conversations, you may be introduced to concepts that you have never before considered, or may even seem contradictory to what you have considered truth for perhaps your whole life. But these concepts are shared as honestly and openly as possible, using real experiences that cannot be denied as being true to these people sharing them. While you listen, take mental or physical notes of ideas of self-improvement that pop into your head. Then, at the end of this podcast, review those notes and make a plan about how you can implement them. Now, kick back 
hit the road, work out, do house or yard work or whatever you do while listening to podcasts and be ready to learn and feel and gain insights like you may have never considered before. Here we go with Father Bill W. I'm sitting down with Father Bill W. Now, as we talked a little bit leading up to this, you said, hey, and introduce me as Father Bill W. And then call me Bill from there. Are you good with that still? I am. Awesome, Bill. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Introduce yourself as if you were in a 12-step meeting and introducing yourself. And then tell us a little bit about your your own journey and who you are. Well, uh, so my name is Bill. I am an alcoholic. And uh, actually, today is my anniversary. So I'm celebrating 47 years. Wow. In the program. That's awesome. Came in at age 27. So you can do the math uh, from there. And um, it's been it's been quite a journey. And recovering also with Al-Anon issues. I I experienced um, abuse growing up as a kid. Uh, Dad was an alcoholic and uh, probably had some damage from that long before even the drinking began. Mm. And uh, then I also do work with uh, Overeaters Anonymous. Different addictions kind of surface at different times, so I, I have uh, multiple addictions to deal with. No, that's that's very interesting, and I'm actually really grateful that uh, you have experience with Overeaters Anonymous. That's one that, so far, I haven't delved into at all. They're the same 12, 12 steps, but... you know, focused on food and that uh, is a little bit different. So tell me a little bit about your own journey in addiction. When did you first experience addictive behaviors, addictive uh, actions? And when did you first realize, hmm, what's going on here probably isn't healthy for me or those around me? That's kind of hard to say. Uh, I grew up in an alcoholic family. And every single male member of my family was alcoholic. About half of the women were alcoholic. So my drinking really didn't stand out uh, with that group. And uh, I started drinking at age 12, drank till I was 27. That's when I got sober. If I could kind of, kind of get into my story a little bit, is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. So um, grew up in New York City and... Um, Started drinking at age 12, won a bottle of wine at a church bazaar. And that was when I knew that I had a, a vocation to the priesthood. <laughs> it, it was like magic. You know, the guy said, well, you take this home to your father, won't you? And I said, absolutely. And a couple of guys in my cell went behind the garage and polished off the bottle. And it was my first drunk. And I, I discovered some magic. And the magic really, uh, Justin, was that I never felt quite normal, never felt like I belonged. And alcohol, from the very beginning, brought me to a place that uh, was very comfortable. And so some people are alcoholics from the beginning, and I think I was one of those, that I, I never really drank socially. I wasn't so interested in drinking socially. I was interested in getting the effect. Hmm. So that went on for, um, you know, a long while. Part of my story is that if if you're familiar or your audience is perhaps familiar with uh, family roles, family systems, you you have uh, 
the scapegoat and the clown and the, uh, well, my role was the family hero. Hmm. And so I was supposed to look good in the family system. So what I, what I found myself doing was trying to look good and drink. And there was a progression going on with that. So it became more and more difficult because I'm trying to do things that look good and uh, be a nice guy. And then my drinking keeps catching up with me and I'm getting in trouble. So it set me up for a series of geographical cures uh, in the AA program. There's an expression that um, says it's, it's a spiritual axiom. If we are disturbed, there's something wrong with us, mm. you know, and that takes makes us be responsible for what's going on. Well, my spiritual axiom was if I am disturbed, there's something wrong with the people around me. Mm. So I would I would change the people around me and then go and start the process all over again. So I did good things. I, uh, I taught high school history in New York. I worked with orphan kids in the Bronx. I uh, went to Israel and worked on a kibbutz, but it uh, was in the Peace Corps in West Africa. But I, I'd stay for like six months to a year, and then the drinking would, would catch up. I'm getting in trouble, and then I have to move on to something else. So that's what you meant by geographical cures. You were all over the place and you'd be sober for a little bit until the alcohol caught up. Is that what that meant? That's exactly right. Change, change the people I'm with, go through the process all over again, look good on the outside, be confused and lost on the inside, and then have my one friend, which was the alcohol that I'm depending upon, but I'm doing that more and more secretly as the progression goes on. So what happened, I think it was providential in my case, was I, I wound up in the Jesuit seminary in Detroit. Um, I was looking for a place where I could look good and drink mm. and, and kind of be taken care of. So it, if you think about it, it was sort of a nice choice. I'd be at Georgetown University teaching history with a bottle of scotch by my side, look like I'm doing life, but not. Mm. If you understand that. All right. And I... The providential part was that I volunteered at an alcohol and drug treatment center in downtown Detroit. And it was uh, for kind of like Skid Row guys, mm -hmm. 180 alcoholics. It was run by a Catholic priest. The treatment there was uh, 17 weeks long. And when I volunteered, they said, we want you to go through treatment as part of this process. Hmm. And so I, I was introduced to group therapy, and I was attended all sorts of lectures and started reading about alcoholism. And I could say, "Oh, there's my grandfather, there's my father, there's there's Uncle Joe, there's." And then in group, they're saying, "And and what about you?" You know, so the fingers started pointing towards me, and um, I would say this that I must not have done it real well because after 17 weeks, they said, "We want you to do it again." So I went through the course twice. But at the, by the end of it, I was convinced intellectually that I was an alcoholic. Mm. If this is the definition of alcoholism, uh, then I fit that bill. But, you know, it, it isn't just accepting it intellectually. It's accepting it at another level. Right. That had not happened. So I, um, I hitchhiked after I was through working there as, as a volunteer. But how old were you at that point? I would have been 25. Okay. 
And uh, I went out to work with Carl Rogers, pretty famous psychologist uh, out in California and um, hitchhiked, was staying at uh, uh, monasteries along the route, took no money, had a note from my superior saying, you know, uh, please help Bill if you can. No person or script, huh? <laughs> Nothing. And, um, and I got as far as Arizona when a guy picks me up and, and he's got a six pack of beer in the car and he says, do you want a drink? And it was like automatic. I just said yes. And I, I had been sober for a couple of months at that point, had been attending AA meetings and uh, acknowledging that I'm an alcoholic. And then when the, the first real temptation came along, boom, I went under. And uh, so I hid out then for about another year and a half. Mm. I was still in the Jesuits, uh, but now my drinking became secretive, very secretive. And because I had told people that I had a problem, but I'm, I'm sneaking it on the side. I wound up at Case Western Reserve University. I'm supposed to be helping the chaplain down there. And mm. I'm stealing gallons of wine and taking them back to my room mm. and getting very drunk and in trouble. And everything was about to hit the fan. And, and so it was time to run again. And two thoughts came into my mind. One was, and these are the two sides of my kind of schizophrenic personality as it had developed up until that point. One was, I'm going to go to Australia and just stay drunk for the rest of my life. Mm. So somehow I figured there were lots of drunks in Australia. <laughs> and, and the other thought was, I'm going to go to India and join an ashram. And that was when I heard a voice, <laughs> total opposites. And that's when I heard a voice in my head. It wasn't auditory, but it was very real. I know where I was. And I, I, can, I can describe the room that I was in. Uh, and this was my bottom because that voice said to me, Bill, you are 27. If those are your choices, there is something wrong with you. Mm. And again, I had lived my life on the basis of if I'm disturbed, there's something wrong with the people around me. No matter where I went now, I was the problem. And I knew it. And now, you know, many, many years later, I can look back and understand what was happening. It was a crack in my ego system. The ego, the self that I had put together could no longer hold. And it cracked open. And, and that was my bottom. Uh, I didn't know where to turn. I didn't know where to go. But I knew I was deeply in trouble, and alcohol was a part of it, uh, but it wasn't all of it, mm. you know? And it, that was true. It's not all of it. It's a symptom of something that's going on deep inside. Mm. I went back to a therapist that I had worked with in Detroit, and he kind of said, well, he'd been expecting me to return, <laughs> waiting for me to turn myself in. He asked if I was willing to go to any length to get sober, and I said I was. And what he said to me, uh, and this I also will never forget, he said, listen, you are 27, and you're not at a physical bottom. You can probably drink for 10 more years, but you are at a spiritual and an emotional bottom, and you're not going to make 10 years. Mm. And I knew he was right. And then he said, if you're willing to go to any lengths, what I want you to do is I want you to go and live on skid row for one year. And I want you to look every alcoholic and addict that you meet in the eye 
and say, there but for the grace of God goes I. Mm. And if you can identify with those, with those men and women, then I believe we can raise your bottom. And, you know, three days before or three days after, I, I don't think I would have done it. But for whatever reason, my desperation was so high, the level of desperation was so high that day. I said, yes, I'll do it. And I did. And I checked into the Salvation Army. The Jesuits gave me a leave of absence from the novitiate. And I began my recovery. And that's 47 years ago uh, today. Wow. So, so as you went into there, as, as you described it to Skid Row and looked at every addict in the eye and said, there, but for the grace of God, go I. Was that initially a very painful thing to, to, to look at? Or terrible. did it become more and more painful as it went along? Or tell me that process. It, it was mixed. At, at a deep level, I knew that I had to face myself. And I knew that I was facing myself. I was not sure that this was the, the best way to face oneself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I couldn't, I go to a nice, you know, fancy ass treatment center somewhere and, uh, <laughs> and try that. But I had committed to this and I wouldn't trade it for a million dollars because it gave me uh, an experience that, that you just can't buy. I, I worked spot labor jobs. I washed walls. It was a kind of a day labor thing that, that we did there. And I went to 12-step meetings in the evening. And I made a connection to AA that I don't think I would have made otherwise. I um, was very empty inside and very lost. And uh, on a number of occasions, really wanted to drink. You know, I mean, that, that thing was not lifted for about five years. Mm. You know, did I make a terrible mistake here? Am I, you know, God, I'm only 27. Look at this guy. He's 58. Okay, I can understand that, you know. Mm. But then when I talked to the guy who was 58, he was in as much denial as I was. Hmm. See, that was the thing. You know, that was the thing. Never woke up no matter how far along in it they were, huh? That's right. That's right. You know, I later became a therapist uh, after a, a long journey. And I, I'll never forget, I had two guys sitting in group and one fellow was there, both alcoholic patients. One was there because he had a DWI and he killed four people in the family, mm. four people wiped out and sitting right next to him was a man who checked himself into treatment because he had gotten drunk and missed his son's birthday party. And he had sworn to himself that his drinking would never affect his family. And it did. And he was a puddle. So the, you know, this bottom thing is it's, it's kind of a movable feast you know, one guy gets it and, and another person doesn't. Mm. It has nothing necessarily to do with uh, how, how terrible the consequence is. It has everything to do with how your ego system is put together and whether, whether this reality can crack through with the pain that you're asking about. So, Bill, that's the second time you've used that word, and I love it, but I'd love to get your definition of it, ego system. The self. It's your idea of yourself. And, and it's uh, in, in time, I learn, and I think it's true, that there are at least two selves. There is the, uh, what would you call it, the persona, the, sh the, the mask mm. that you put on, 
and you face the world. And you're taught that. Mm-hmm. And, and it's very helpful to be socialized, uh, to have a mask. You know, you just don't blurt out everything. You say what's socially acceptable. You do what's socially acceptable, you know. And if you, if you kind of know you're doing it, though there's another part of you that's inside that one might call the real self, the true self, that uh, knows you're performing and it's not such a great split. If uh, if all you have is the mask and you're not in touch with that inner self, that's when you get real danger. And that's really, I think, where alcoholism and drug addiction and many addictions, different forms of addiction, really, really come into play. Because there is that split going on uh, with the self. You see? Yeah. With the inner self or with the, the true self, right? Yes, either 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 one does well. Yeah. No, I I like that word, and I'm sure it's well. It may be your own creation, but it may be out there that I just haven't been aware of forever. Exactly. I, I like it. Yeah, it's it's every you know it's every man and woman's journey to become who you were meant to be, and you know you kind of start off whole, let's say, as an innocent child. Uh, but then life happens to you, and you begin to uh, retreat inside. Hmm. You, know, you go through that process of midlife. Jung said this, you know, after midlife, success has nothing to teach a person. Because what you're doing in the first half of life is collecting successes. I mean, you're a little kid, and they, you know, you, you, you get a uh, hundred on your spelling B and they, they put a star on your forehead and you're just wonderful. And everybody at a boy, at a girl, way to go. You know, you're pumping up your ego, which mm-hmm. is very helpful and necessary. See, you become a self and you, and you're special. You see, you're special, but then you have to realize everybody is special. Mm. And if you don't realize that everybody is special, you can get stuck in your specialness mm. and you can stay immature and you never really have grown up. I believe addiction is a form of a real immaturity. You know, uh, I'm stuck there with my, with my bottle mm. like a baby. Yeah. I, I had uh, somebody in a, in one of the rooms um, say something like this, you know, when you start getting into recovery you mature really quickly. For example, I forever was kind of stuck as about a 10 to 14 year old child yeah. emotionally right. for decades. Yeah. And I remember the first time I felt <laughs> the first time I had emotions that I actually felt and embraced. And it was just a handful of years ago. Right. And what a emotional mess I was for that for that little while, because all of a sudden these emotions came in and all of a sudden I started seeing things differently. Now I'm still emotionally a teenager in so many regards, mm-hmm. but I've matured so much in other places. What's your take on that or, or experience with that? Yes, that it, it, it is a maturation process that you have to go through and you can't skip any steps. <laughs> you know, I'm not talking about the 12 steps. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about the growing up steps. So if you didn't do it, you have to go back and do it, all right? 
I met my wife uh, and, and we're still married now. But she, see, I, and I'm a, I left the Jesuits. I, I went from a Salvation Army to a halfway house and she and I were dating. And see, she had an apartment. And I really wanted to move in with her to her apartment. <laughs> and she said, no, hmm. you have to get your own apartment. And if I had skipped the step, and just moved in with her, it would not have worked. Mm. So it's, it's like there are necessary steps in, in growing up that you have to take. And, and you just can't bypass them. If you bypass them or try to bypass them, it's going to come back and bite you. No, that's that's good good advice, I think. Make sure that uh, I take all those steps, those developmental milestones. One of the things I had to do uh, was, I mean, my family could have sent me money when I was in Detroit, all right? They lived back in New York. But I would have paid one heck of a price for that. Because, you know, what I was told by the people I was with, no, you don't take any money from them. You earn your own. <laughs> well, so I, I, I turned down the money for, for three or four years. I wouldn't take anything. I got a package in the mail when I was about, I think it was three or four years sober. And I opened it up. It was from my mother. And it was a set of apron strings that she had cut and mailed to me. Wow. What did that mean to you at that time? It meant everything. <laughs> it, it meant that I had earned it. Mm. I had earned this. Wow. And I watched, my mother was very code, codependent. And see, she, her dad was alcoholic. Her husband was alcoholic. She lived her reality around alcoholics, and it was like a black hole. If you got into her, you know, too close to her, she would suck you in. Mm. So I had to cut that cord, cut that apron string, break away from that, and find my own self. I, I was quite proud of that. Uh, I wish I'd saved them. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like throughout much of your youth and young adulthood, though, you were trying to do that, but doing it the wrong way. You know, you were separating yourself, going to the Peace Corps, to, um, you know, the Jesuit uh, the seminary, yeah, all these different places to try and cut those cords, but while still holding on to the bottle. Am I interpreting that correctly? You are. And, and if you look, if I look back on it, it's like I am doing it but a part of me is not doing it. So I'm doing it on the outside, but the inside is still immature. Mm. It still hasn't grown up. And so, you, I mean, eventually you've got to get both parts going together, you know, and that to me is what recovery is about. Mm. It's a lifelong journey of growing up spiritually, emotionally, and um, becoming the person you were meant to be not trying to be somebody else. Wow. So, so there, there's some good stuff there. So tell me a little bit about your, I don't know if it would be your first sponsor, but your first sponsor that kind of walked you through the steps when it, when you allowed it to take in your life. Uh, my first sponsor was a man named Floyd. Floyd, he's dead now. Floyd Lawton. He was a, he, at the time I met him, he was a therapist but he had lived for 11 years on Skid Row himself. So, I mean, he had a hard bottom. 
and um, he was a philosopher <laughs> and a very wise man. And he taught me many, many things. Uh, I did my fifth step with him, and um, he was tremendously helpful in that regard. You know, and I've, I've had about I had about five sponsors. I don't have a sponsor anymore. Uh, I think you should outgrow that, but that's a, a bit of a heresy on my part. Okay. But, you know, I mean, I think after 20 years, and then Floyd taught me this. He said, you know, you're going to outgrow your need for a sponsor someday. And, and, and my sponsors, as I look back on them, were father figures to me. They were always older than I was, and they mentored me in the way a father should be mentoring a son. Mm. And that was what I was getting from them, uh, that which I had never gotten in my own life because my dad was uh, locked in his own alcoholism and therefore was not available. But Floyd... Um, Floyd was a very wise man and uh, took me under his wing, taught me a lot of things and, and gave me a role model that I, I really wanted to emulate. It really blessed. Oh, that's really neat. And, and neat that, that he, you know, walked you through that, got you through the fifth step. And, and really what we're going to be talking about is your experience, your understanding, your teaching or, or helping to develop so that we better understand step six. So is there anything else before we jump into step six about your story, your background that you think is important to share right now before we get into step six? Yes. And this is something that happened to me at about 20 years older because I had, uh, I was in a NAA for 20 years and um, serious about it, serious student of the steps, working a, as a therapist, and um, then I, after at 20 years, I hit another wall. And it was like, I need something deeper than this. AA is not the way I'm working it. The way I'm working the steps is not going to be able to sustain me. In other, in other words, another 90 meetings in 90 days or another run through the steps, just go back to the beginning and work them over again. It wasn't going to help me. And I knew at a very deep level. And it was at that point that, again, fortune took hold. Uh, I was introduced to the history of AA by an AA archivist in Oklahoma City. Earl Husband was his name. And uh, I went, visited him one day, spent three hours at his home, and he taught me about the beginnings of Alcoholics Anonymous, the, the program out of which it emerged, the Oxford Group, and what I, the way I described that, it was like hearing the 12 steps uh, in another language. Hmm. See? And, and that was, so we ask, it was something else important. Yes, yes, that was tremendously important to me because in another way, uh, I had 20 years sober, but now I got reintroduced to the 12 steps in a very different manner. Hmm. That was not what I had been taught, and that really helped me through the rest of my, my recovery. I was getting bored with AA. Hmm. You know, 20 years, my God, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty good link, you know? Yeah. It's not bad. Uh, I was getting bored. Well, I learned uh, some of the spiritual origins of the program and of the steps, see, that was different from what I had been taught and that brought new life into them. 
So if we're going to get into step six, which I think is on your agenda, it's necessary for listeners to know that I'm going to come at this thing a little bit differently. Good. Yeah. Because six and seven are in the big book. They're the shortest. <laughs> they're short. And there, there are two paragraphs, one on six and one on seven. And it's, it's like, couldn't they have gone into those a little bit deeper? And uh, so I, I've read an awful lot of AA history. I've read a lot about the Oxford group. I've studied a lot of original material. I, I'm not an, an archivist by myself, but I do try to popularize some of the things that have uh, we've left behind. See, there are some things from the Oxford group that, that AA left behind, and, and rightly so. Uh, but there were some good things that they left behind that I think can really help people. And six and seven uh, are some key steps in that regard. Yeah, and that's something that I almost feel that I got ripped off a little bit. Um, when I worked through worked the steps, I took steps five, six, and seven all pretty much at the same time. It was, yeah. I sat down with my sponsor and went through my step five. And at the end, he said, okay, you're right. ready to give up your character weaknesses? Right. Yeah, I'm willing to. Okay, let's pray and ask him to and ask God to do it. All right, you're done. <laughs> yeah, and you know that's all it was. And I thought, okay, very good. And as the years have gone by, I'm like, hmm, there's more to this than yes. than what I experienced. So, so let's talk a little bit about that more. Before we do that, I'll just go ahead and read what step six is. We were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. So tell me a little bit about what that means to you, and then let's go into your experience with it and how you would like to share, uh, explain it. Well, historically, there were two surrenders. There was the initial surrender that happened, uh, and I'm, I'm interested in alcoholics, where the alcoholic is, is desperate and in need of, of help. Hmm. And so... Dr. Bob, uh, the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, sponsored some 5,000 guys through the steps. And he would uh, meet you in your hospital room and uh, really kind of take you through uh, the first three steps. Hmm. You had to admit, and this is what the big book says, to your innermost self that you are an alcoholic. So uh, he had to be convinced that, that you were one. And that there's a hopelessness to that. See, if you'll read the big book, uh, the, word, <laughs> the word hopeless doesn't appear in any one of the steps. And yet, in the first several chapters, it's there over and over and over again. Uh, we were hopeless men and women. We had a hopeless condition. The doctor said I was hopeless. So to me, the message of step one is one of hopelessness outside of self, that, that I need something outside of self to help me. So, so let, me, let me stop there real quick. So do you see a difference between the word hopeless and powerless? Oh, yes. Okay. So, so explain that a little bit before we move on from here, because the word in step one in, in AA is powerless, that we're yes. powerless over alcohol, and, right. and you're talking about hopeless. So talk about that a little bit before we move on. Okay. Uh, the way it was described to me is like a circle, all right? So uh, if you can imagine a circle, 
and and there there are two. So it's if you do it like a clock, you know, mm-hmm. at nine o'clock and three o'clock are two words: powerless and unmanageable. I had to understand what did those words mean, mm-hmm. and so powerless. I take that to be the physical allergy that one has to addiction. I am powerless over alcohol. When I drink, here's what happens to me. It sets off a craving and I do not stop until I am drunk and in trouble. Mm-hmm. I am powerless over it. All right. Now I think, and I was taught that I need to reserve an understanding of that word powerless for the physical allergy of the body that the big book talks about. All right. And I, and see, I go a little crazy when people say, well, I'm powerless over people, places, and things Hmm. that drives me nuts. Hmm. Uh, I'm not powerless over Albuquerque. Albuquerque never did to me what alcohol did to me. I, I need to reserve a special word for that in my vocabulary. And that is powerless. And then that's not exactly what the big book says, but it comes awfully close to it. Mm. All right. That the allergy thing is definitely there that, you know, that was uh, Wilson's doctor, his, his allergy theory. So, so when I drink, I get drunk, but then and here's the, here's the, the second half. I'm coming around the bend there and I'm coming up to the other side of the clock mm-hmm. and our lives had become unmanageable. Well, that's a funny word, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I don't think I ever used the word unmanageable before I came into AA. See, I never woke up drunk and said, God, how am I feeling today? Oh, I know, unmanageable. <laughs> <laughs> never did, never did. So, well, where did that one come from? Well, it came from the Oxford group. Unmanageable, there was the unmanageability prayer that... that the Oxford group people said. And it came from a, a, a young kid in India, of all places. His name was Victor. And he was at a school, and he was incorrigible. He was in trouble all the time. Uh, and they were getting ready to kick him out. And so an Oxford group team came to the school. And they said, and Frank Bookman, who was the founder of the Oxford group, uh, came to the school and they said, Dr. Bookman, I don't know if you can do anything with this boy, but... Here's his story, and he's in deep trouble. And so Bookman spent some time with him, about an hour, and got him on his knees, confessing his his troubles. Mm. And his prayer was this, Lord, I cannot manage my own life. Manage it for me. Mm. So unmanageability is about the direction of one's life. All right? My life lived from my ego, is unmanageable. I am insane. Alcoholics are insane. Now, this this was beaten into me uh, by good old Floyd. He said, now, you're a special kind of nut, you see. You're not the normal nut. You don't need to go to the state hospital. But when it comes to alcohol, you are insane. See, if broccoli had done to you the things that alcohol is done to you, what would you do with broccoli? Oh, I'll put that sucker down. Mm-hmm. That's right. You would. But, but your mind talks you back into drinking once again. And it had done that to me. It had done it repeatedly. And I knew 
left to my own devices, I, I had this insight that left to my own devices, there is an insanity in me that will say, Bill, it's been six months. It's been a year. It's been 47 years. A little wine with dinner is not going to hurt. Mm. There's the madness. Mm -hmm. There's the madness. And in the beginning, it came up frequently, Justin. A, I mean, a, a lot, you know? And then over time, it lessened. See, so, so if, if you have an allergy of the body that when you drink, you get drunk, and you have a mind that when you don't drink, it talks you back into drinking, mm -hmm. that's a hopeless condition. Yeah. See? That's a hopeless condition. So the message of step one is an experience of hopelessness. And then step two becomes, well, is there some hope for the hopeless? <laughs> right. Well, if there is, it has to be from something outside of you mm -hmm. because you're hopeless. But, but there is hope, you know, but that hope has to come from a different part. It can't come from the ego, mm. you see? It has to come from deep within. And, and really, it is from the unconscious. I, I believe God lives in the unconscious. Mm. And that's, that's probably the closest description and experience of God uh, that one can have is is making the unconscious conscious. Mm. I think that's why we're here, is to realize who we are in our fullness. And that gets into Jungian shadow work, that the, the dark side um, has to be owned, which is what the fourth and fifth step are all about, is right. owning that darkness and sharing that with another person. Hmm. You talked, there's the first surrender, and you mentioned a second surrender. Tell me about the second surrender. So the first surrender, you'd probably do in the hospital. And and Dr. Bob, <laughs> see, I wasted a lot of time with step two. You know, and <laughs> I, 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 I believe step two should not take more than 30 seconds. Hmm. You know, so here it is. Here it is. Dr. Bob would get a guy, and so he's convinced he's an alcoholic, and, and he says, and he's convinced that he's hopeless. And he says, well, you're a hopeless fella. Is it possible there could be a God? Two questions. Is it possible there could be a God? Not saying there is, not saying you know it, mm -hmm. but is it possible? And if someone could say yes, then the second question he would ask, well, if there is a God, not saying there is, could God do for you what you can't do for yourself? Boom, done. You answer yes to both of those questions, you have completed step two. Hmm. What, what people try to do in 12-step is they try to come up with a concept of God. They try to come up with an idea of God, hmm. an image of God. Do not do that. Hmm. <laughs> it's a waste of your time, all right? It's an absolute waste of your time. Interesting. What you want is an experience of God. And what the steps are there to do is to give you an experience of God by working all of them. And, and two, you get that out of the way immediately. And so then it's down, Bob would get you down on your knees. He would be on his knees in the hospital. This is the first surrender. Ask God for, to come into your life and to help you with your drinking. Hmm. And, and sometimes there's a, there's a feeling that goes along with that. 
oftentimes. Mm-hmm. Just getting on your knees is something very humbling. Right. You know what I mean? And humility is really the key to recovery. Mm. See? There's got to be an infusion of something from outside or deep within. You know, it's kind of coming in both directions. Uh, that is going to sort of create a new self. Mm. That's really what we're inter- interested in doing is dying to the old self and being born into a new self. Mm. And like you were saying earlier, I didn't know who I was. Why? Well, of course not, because I'm medicating my feelings. Mm-hmm. And so we're very fragile. Uh, those first few years in recovery, very fragile people. Yeah. You know? But, but oh, so then you do the fourth and fifth step and you, you know, make an inventory. See if actually step six and seven ought to precede four and five. Hmm. They ought to precede it. T- tell me, I mean, for me, doing step four and five helped me see what my yeah. character defects were. And that's what, my... what it's there to do. That's it. It's there to do. But let me tell you how they did it in the old days. Uh, they had something that they called the four absolutes. Mm-hmm. Honesty, purity, unselfishness, and love. These were the standards. And when, when an individual, so like the first 100 people getting sober, uh, when, when they, it was time for them to do what we would call inventory, they didn't call it inventory. Mm-hmm. They would call it the second surrender. Uh, they would be given four sheets of paper. And on one is the word honesty, another purity, another unselfishness, and the fourth one love. These were the heart and soul of the Oxford. Mm. And the question would be, where do you fall short? Where are you falling short? Are you a lot? Let's take honesty. Are you a liar, a cheat, and a thief? <laughs> yes, I am. Let's, you know, what, what is standing out for you? in those areas. Let's get that down on paper and then let's talk about it. Now that's a, that's a simple way of doing it, but that is what leads to then the second surrender. So Wilson said he put the four absolutes. He was asked, well, where, since these were so central to the Oxford group, and since you got sober in the Oxford group, where are the four absolutes in your program? Mm. Said I put them in six and seven. Mm. Now, that's very important for people to know. Yeah. So you want to take your, I mean, your inventory, um, honesty, purity, unselfishness, and love. Now, I think you could come up with maybe perhaps four different ones, but I think those are four excellent ones. Right. And, and they really include a lot of things of the dishonest. And, and the big book talks about them, but it talks about them in the opposites. You see, mm. watch out for selfishness. Watch out for dishonesty. It uses the words, but it, Wilson didn't want anybody knowing that he was taking them from the Oxford group. Mm. So he, he was trying to kind of cover that up in some way for a number of reasons. No, so I think I, I, I'm i seeing the background here of building up to step six and seven and moving forward to there. So tell me a little bit about what step six looks like now to you and uh, and how you know, somebody could look at maybe looking forward to, to taking that step six and how somebody who maybe has already done it can look back and go, Hmm, 
I'm going to start putting this into practice in my life to, in, in my daily use of it. Well, I am an AA heretic. So we, we have to get that out on the table. Right? I only work three steps in my life today, mm. 10, 11, and 12. Mm-hmm. And I've talked to a lot of old timers and uh, I get a lot of agreement with that. Not so much with AA fundamentalists, you know, uh, but the old timers who really know their stuff. Because I don't think there's a principle that you're of, 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 that's present in the steps that you're not going to find in 10, 11, and 12. Right. So when you ask me, how do I, do I work step six daily? I do not. But I work step 10 daily. Which covers step six if you do it Which right. Step six. Exactly. You got it. So I'm watching. I am watching myself. And what am I watching for? I'm watching for my honesty my purity and and purity. I mean, purity is not just sexual, Mm. you know, it's any contamination, Mm. any contamination that gets between me and God, anything that gets between me and God is dangerous. Now, truth is lots and lots of stuff gets between me and God, right? Lots of stuff on a daily basis gets there, but that's where the growth comes. You see is watching for that. Now, an old-timer said something very, very, very wise. This is about step 10 and 11. He said, if you don't watch step 10, then you don't know what the hell to pray for. Mm. (laughs) So so you're watching your life. And I went to uh, an old guy who got sober the day after Bill Wilson. He he, um, was very big on two-way prayer. And I I wanted to know what two-way prayer was all about. And he said, it's all about the absolutes. It's all about the four absolutes. So when the answer to your question, step 10 is all about the absolutes, in a sense. It's watching for that, uh, the the disturbance and the force, to use Star Wars language. Okay. There's something sneaking in here, all right? What is it? Let's catch it early before it uh, takes hold. You see, yeah. So, so let's let's kind of go back to the you running time to run again. I'm going to use that phrase, time to run again. Yeah. When those moments came up in your life before recovery, and maybe a few times since, where you're like, "All right, it's time to move on to something different" or whatever. Yeah. Is that when maybe you start feeling those disturbances in the force where, hey, I've got some cognitive dissonance between what I've been, what I am doing in my life and these gnawing weaknesses that are being shown to me in my peripheral vision, maybe at that time and not square on. But does that make sense what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff is happening. Stuff is happening. Stuff is always happening. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's what makes recovery an adventure. I'm going inside and I'm looking and I'm growing and I'm changing. And, uh, you know, I have yet to go through a whole day absolutely honest, pure, unselfish, and loving. Haven't done it. Have you ever been tempted to look at the end of the day and go, no, I was good today? Or is it, is it pretty clearly shown to you when you reflect on your day? I see it there. I see fear. Mm. I see selfishness. I see troubles. And this is, this is where other addictions really, you know, can begin to show. Greed, uh, 
sexual addictions, food addictions, anger addictions, control addictions, you know, they, they're there. Mm. And um, if I am in touch with God on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, on a moment-to-moment basis, now this is something I learned very early in steps six and seven, because there's a discussion, um, well, do they ever get removed? See? Do these things ever get removed, these these defects of character, Mm. shortcomings, which Wilson said uh, were different words he used for sin. There's... You'll never hear the S word in the 12-step program. Right, right. Never, never hear that. But you know how they wrote it, and I like this about the Oxford group. They would write it S, it's kind of small, uh-huh. and then a great big I, oh. and then N. So sin. Sin mm. is the I getting in the way of my relationships. Mm. My relationships with God, my relationships with my fellow man, my relationships with my true self. That's the stuff. Mm. I have kind of boiled down the, the 12 steps into three uh, categories. Kind of clarifies it. Uh, you know, the first, see, I like simplicity. And I think we've, we've really overcomplicated the 12 step process. Just like we've overcomplicated religion. Mm. See, I mean, God, we've, we've made a mess of it. You know, three words. And I got this uh, out, out of studying the Oxford group stuff. It, was, it just kind of came to me one day that here are the steps. So the first three steps, connection. I am connecting. I, who am disconnected and stuck in myself, mm-hmm. now have established rudimentary connection. Possible there could be a God. If there is God, I turn my life and my will over to you. Please help me. Boom. Connection. Now... Right. Six, seven, eight, and nine, four, five, excuse me, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine are correction. So you connection, and now we're going to have correction. So what's wrong with, with, with this life that I've got? So I take an inventory. I share it with another person. I'm doing the four absolutes, hey? I'm making my amends. Correction. All, all about correcting the stuff. 10, 11, and 12 are all about direction. Mm. Now God guides you. What the Oxford group people believed was if you're living by the four absolutes, God is going to guide you. And that brings the two-way prayer thing into, into focus. Because that, a lot of alcoholics and addicts, uh, I mean, they, we really struggle with prayer and meditation, how to do it, you know? <laughs> yep. You know? Well, if you, if you will watch and then pray for where you need help, and then ask for God's guidance, and then write down the stuff that comes, you then start to enter into a, um, a relationship with God. That is, you're not just talking into a vacuum. You're just not talking into emptiness. You're talking to a person, and you're listening to a person and writing down the words that come. And that's the thing that makes such a difference. And then in 12, you act. You know, you watch, you pray, and you act. So, well, first of all, the first time I saw this connection, correction, direction thing, I was mm-hmm. looking around on your website and learning yeah. things about it, and I, and I saw you say that, and I was like, there was this big light that just came on in my mind. Oh, that is beautiful. Just yeah. beautiful. I love it. Because it's simple. Because it's simple, Justin. 
Yeah. People need simple. <laughs> Especially <have> me. <laughs> well, me too. We've complicated this thing. Yeah. We've complicated it so terribly. Yeah. I love that. I think most people get hung up on connections, one, a big thing in today's world in, with a lot of people, but correction. Nobody, myself included, wants to admit that the way I'm doing things isn't working out, even if it means that I'm going to keep running into that wall over and over again just to prove that I can run through it, right? And there's where you're meeting your ego. Yep. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Now, now, you have to have an ego. If you don't have an ego, you're psychotic. But what is, oh, the, the spiritual connectedness of your ego? Is it right-sized? Mm. Love that phrase. Yeah, I like it too. And am I in right relationship? And that's what I'm looking for. And that's what I'm watching for. Is my ego, myself, in right relationship with what Jung would call the greater self, the Christ consciousness, the Buddha consciousness, the, the, the unconscious, the psyche? I mean, it's much more than the ego. Mm. And the ego has to be right-sized in relationship to that. And if it is, then pretty smooth sailing doesn't mean stuff ain't going to happen. But stuff happens. And it's like, one guy was in therapy for 10 years. And he said, he finally said to the psychiatrist, for 10 years, it's been, why me? Why me? Why me? And then finally got it. Why not me? Mm. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty simple. See? That's pretty simple. But there's the ego getting right-sized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when, when I find myself going into that victim mode, that why me mentality, which is a really, really easy place for me to go to, oh, yeah. you know, because, no, well. No, well. <laughs> because I'm a son of God. Hello. Right. <laughs> but right. so is every single other person in the, in the world. And in Christianity, the son of God wound up on a cross. Yeah. Be careful of this. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. And I love, um, so, so you mentioned you use this word watch several times yes, yes. And, and it didn't start ringing out to me in this conversation until you mixed it with watch, pray and act. Yeah. Um, I mean, as I think to the son of God who ended up on a cross before he ended up on a cross, he's in the garden and he yeah. tells his disciples watch and pray. I'm going to go right. off a little bit here. No, that's right. That's right. Exactly right. Watch and pray. And they go together. Yeah. And, and that's just such a powerful thing now that I've brought that back or into context in my mind, that whole watch and pray and then act. Um, tell me a little bit, dig a little bit deeper on that for me, if you wouldn't mind. Tell me your understanding or how your concept of watch, pray, and act as it works together. Okay. So the, the Oxford group people had what they called a quiet time. My quiet time in early AA was... Uh, you know, I drink a cup of coffee, smoke my cigarette, and read the 24-hour book. Say, God, please keep me sober today. Run out the door. Mm. And that was pretty much it. Okay? And then I, 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 mean, I got a little bit better, but not much. One of the things I discovered in the Oxford group, early AA writings, not Oxford group, early AA writings, was the early AAs believed that prayer and meditation were more important than meetings. Now, that's a heresy today. Hmm. That's an absolute heresy today. But that was, that was what they said. 
when they studied why is this thing being effective, they said meetings were helpful, but not mandatory. Prayer and meditation was mandatory. Mm. And we flipped it around. No, it's you go to meetings, go to meetings, go to meetings, go to meetings. Well, you can stay pretty sick in meetings. Or How many people do we see in meetings that are there, you know, every week or, you know, a couple times a week and don't act? That's right. They don't change. Mm-hmm. And the whole thing is about transformation. The whole thing is about transformation. The whole thing is about becoming a new person. That's it. And that's it. And, and Floyd, go back to my Floyd. He's, he used to talk about uh, introducing me to the concept of limited conversions. I like that phrase, too, that many people in 12-step program are quite happy with a limited conversion. Mm. Give me just enough so I'm not drinking. Mm-hmm. All right? But don't start messing with the rest of my life. Yeah. Half measured availed us nothing. Well, the truth is half measures avail us quite a bit. See? Half measures do avail us quite a bit. I once made the mistake when I was, I was living in Louisiana and I had another sponsor over there named uh, Fletcher. And in a, in, I, I was given an AA talk and he was in the back of the room. And, and I made that statement. Half measures availed us nothing. And he shouts out from the back of the room, ah, oh, bullshit. I got 35 years on half measure. Mm. And he was right. Yeah. He was right. So, so. I don't want to go off on this tangent, but that's such a the, – the limited conversion is such a powerful thing. Isn't it? Yeah, it's good. Go back to the Watch, Pray, Act. <laughs> watch, Pray, Act. Yes. So, so they had a quiet time in the morning, mm-hmm. and they said it should last ideally at least an hour. Now, I, I, I encourage people to work towards that, you know, but to try to set aside a time in the morning to watch – and they, they weren't exact in, in what you have to do during that time, but there would be scripture reading, guided reading, looking at your life, pray, you know, prayers of, of one sort or another, whatever your practice is. Mm-hmm. And if you're doing contemplative prayer, you know, I encourage people, you know, if you do 20 minutes of silence, you know, include that if that's helpful for you. But then there was, a, there was a part of the quiet time that was reserved for two-way prayer. And in that, they would listen for God's guidance or take a problem to God and ask for, God, for, for guidance on something. And then they would write down the thoughts that came. Some of those thoughts they would notice were what they would call illuminative thoughts. They have a light around them. It's like doing dream analysis. Where if you if you if you do dream analysis, a particular subject or an individual in a dream, it might be three or four things. Well, you write them down, hmm. and one of them just clicks. No, it's that. It's that. That's the illuminative thought. Hmm. And so, so if you're getting guidance, then you act on the guidance. So I, I'm mine might be call Joe. Call Joe. And I wrote that down. Joe came into my mind. Now, during the day, am I going to call Joe? I hope so. Yeah, I, I would hope so, too. But you know what? Sometimes I don't. Yeah. Sometimes that ego sneaks in and says, eh, what, you know, other things are important. 
And so if I have a day where I'm not following my guidance, my connection with God uh, tends to dry up. Mm. Whereas if I call Joe and I don't say, hey, Joe, God told me to call you. you know, I right. Doing that, you know, but, you know, in some part of my mind, I'm kind of knowing that. Right. I'm kind of being obedient. And for an alcoholic to be obedient is almost an oxymoron. You know, <laughs> it's not natural for us to be obedient. But if I'm being obedient, then that ego that we talked about is becoming right-sized. Hmm. And the big book says, you know, when we begin this practice, we may do some foolish things because we're new at this. See, now you understand what they're talking about. That's what they meant in that thing. Hmm. That they were, they were writing down their thoughts. And then they were acting on their thoughts. Hmm. And sometimes they may have been wrong, they thought. But God takes pleasure, it says, even if Joe isn't home, you know, and I call him. Well, I did my part. Hmm. I did my part. That's the thing that brings spirituality to life. So as you're working, as you're doing these two-way prayers, as you're watching and praying and acting, do you have occasions in those two-way prayers where God is pointing out those character, defects of character, and, and saying, hey, you need to work on this today? Absolutely. Absolutely. Give me an example of that in your life, maybe, where where you've had that experience and what you've done with it. Well, let's, let's take food. Okay. okay. Yeah, let's do that. Thank you. Cause that's a, it's a very difficult issue. And, uh, my, my food is, is not perfect. I haven't had a drink in 47 years. There are very few people who can say they've been abstinent for 47 years in OA. Mm. All right. Some do there. There are some, there, there are some, but that has not been been my experience. So I fail in my food. I bring it back to God. And here's here's an interesting thing. I never get yelled at. Mm. Never, ever, ever. So it's always encouraging me to go further, encouraging me to stay with it, encouraging me to uh, one day at a time to to face it. And that's been a very beautiful thing. As I said, I think I said this earlier, Jung said, success has nothing to teach a man. You know, we learn from our failures. I, I don't learn much from staying sober another day. I, I don't get down on my knees and beg God for a day of sobriety. I don't do that. I did in the beginning. Yeah. Because it was so, I was so desperate. But now my focus is more on other things. It's, it's on my, my anger my resentments that I, that I still hold, my fears that come up, all right? And these are what I bring to God. And I get redirected and told that it's okay. And, you know, in, in, the, in the big picture of things, it is okay. And I learned that at the Salvation Army. I didn't have a two dimes in a rub together. Mm-hmm. It was okay. At some place inside, it's always okay. And that's the place you have to find. And that's the place I have to try to uh, live out. And, uh, and I don't do it, man. Hmm. You know, I fail. And that's okay. Hmm. 
And, that, and, that, and one of the objections, let's go back, we're, we're supposed to be on six and seven. So right. one of the objections that you're going to hear about six and seven is people say, well, it's progress and not perfection. Mm. But for the Oxford group people, it was shoot per, for perfection and settle for progress. Mm. There's a difference. Yes, there is. See, if I'm just shooting for progress, oh, my God, it's so easy to uh, get by, settle for stuff. <laughs> I can justify this much progress. That's right. Exactly right. But if I shoot for the perfection, and the way I describe this to people is it, it's like, it, think of it as, as heading, if you're a pilot, you're heading for due north. Hmm. Not sort of north, kind of north, half-assed north. <laughs> it's due north. And then you drift east and drift a little west and you correct. I mean, same thing with going down the highway. You're constantly correcting the steering wheel. And that's what you're doing. This has been good stuff. So, so Bill, for someone who is right now scraping on their bottom or in denial about where they're at, or maybe a family member of someone who's just in big, big trouble with their own, with the addiction of a loved one. What is some words of advice that you have for those people? What would you share with them to bring them a little bit of hope in their hopelessness? Well, I I would say find some people who have found a way out. All right. And so I have been in 12-step program for going on 50 years. And that's where I find my meaning, you know, and my purpose in life. It has come through that. So, yeah, uh, if, if, you, if a loved one has a problem, I would say go to Al-Anon and look. Because you can find some very sick Al-Anons. Just like with, with any 12-step program. You, but you find the people who have done the work and you will know it. And you find the books that will help you, you know, and the big book, uh, it's hard to go wrong with that one. Mm-hmm. Really, especially chapter five. It's a very special chapter in there. Mm-hmm. And you begin to live from that. You know, if therapy is available, get yourself a good therapist. But if not, get yourself a good sponsor, a person who has overcome the issue that you are particularly stuck with and learn from them and then outgrow them. Hmm. (laughs) I like that invitation there at the end. Outgrow them. And not in a prideful way, but uh, through experience. That's right. I mean, because I think if you, back to sponsorship, I had said this earlier, I am a bit of a heretic on that, but Floyd, Floyd said that to me, he said, you will outgrow your need for a sponsor. You should outgrow your need for a sponsor. Many times what we are doing is staying immature in our sponsor relationship. And it's a setup. And it's a setup for the sponsor to have uh, his or her ego go through the roof. I'm not saying it does, but I'm saying it's, it's very dangerous. And, and, and what I like about two-way prayer is what I tell people is, some people say, well, well would you sponsor me? I, I will for a new person coming in, you know, uh, but someone who's been in the program, no. I say, you bring me your two-way prayers. 
Mm. You bring me the guidance that you've gotten from God mm. and share that with me. And that'll be very interesting. I'd be happy to help you with that. But huh. don't look to me to solve your problems. Look to God to solve your problems. Mm. Look to yourself your, with a capital S self to solve your problems. Awesome. So is there anything else uh, before we close this down, Bill, that you feel you'd like to share with me or anyone else listening? Well, if, if folks are interested, I'd encourage them to go to our uh, website on twowayprayer.org and learn about the process. That's a pretty simple thing that we put together there, but I think it would be very helpful. And then there's lots of uh, articles and things they can drop down. And uh, uh, I'm going to have you on. I'm, I'm also doing a podcast, so Father Bill W., kind of check it, check that out and see if it's a helpful thing. I go through each one of the steps and give some of the historical background for them. Awesome. I see. I know that that's what God's asking me to do. God's will for me is that, that there was some really good stuff back there in the early days that has been left behind. Two-way prayer is one of them. The four absolutes, understanding six and seven in a different way. Those things are important. Well, I really appreciate it, Bill. This has been really helpful and enlightening to me, and I hope it's been meaningful to you, too. I, uh, I couldn't think of a better way to spend my 47th anniversary. <laughs> happy birthday to you. That's just amazing. I'm really excited and happy for you. Thank you much. So there you have it. Step six. We're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. And don't you just find heaps of wisdom and experience in Father Bill W.? I know I do. Thanks again, Bill. That was an amazing conversation. Now, I'm going to link the things that he talked about in the show notes. Please go and continue to learn from him, from his podcast, and by checking out the website, twowayprayer.org. That one practice of two-way prayer has been a major part of my own life over the last month and a half or so since I was first introduced to Father Bill. And it really has revolutionized my connection with with God and has made me more cognizant of what God's will is for me. Very powerful. Now, if you felt something in your heart and mind that is motivating you to act on it, whether it be to share this episode or this entire series of the Journey Through Life podcast with a loved one, or to start taking some steps yourself to get a personal shortfall strengthened, please, I ask you, act on it. It can and will make all the difference in your life. Now for the housekeeping part of the program. Please go and check us out on Facebook and Instagram at at JTL Podcast. Like and follow us. I've recently started reposting old and original episodes of the Know and Do Podcast, which the Journey Through Life Podcast was called before I changed the name. I've done I've posted those episodes on Facebook and also on our blog at www.jtlpod.com. To learn of the origins of this project and podcast, I would be honored if you went and checked these out too. You can also drop us a note about your own experiences, strength, and hope at thejtlpodcast at gmail.com. Please also support us by visiting our sponsors, who I purposely did not put at the beginning of this episode or any of the other of this 12-week series, but they really are helping this podcast continue forward. They are alifeuntold.com, shepherdbrackets.com, and radfordpineshomedecor.com. 
with a lifeuntold.com use promo code Justin to save 10% on your order. And with the other two, shepherdbrackets.com and radfordpineshomedecor.com, use promo code JTLPOD5 to save 5% on your orders there. Now, these conversations that I have recorded in the Journey and Recovery series have been life-changing for me as I have been applying many new concepts into my own daily life from the lessons I am learning. And I am definitely becoming a different and better person for it. And I hope you are too a little bit. Have a great week and press forward one day at a time. Mm-hmm.